Hello, constant listener. Quick announcement before we begin, Copper Shuck is going to host a Q&A session on Facebook on February 17th at 7 p.m. MST. I'd love to see you there, and please feel free to send me any questions that you might have. And now, let us begin. February of 1977 brought about one of my favorite classic rock songs, The Eagles Hotel California. If you've never heard of Hotel California, I recommend pausing this podcast and looking it up right now. It's okay, I'll be here when you get back. The lyrics are haunting. It's story-driven, behind a catchy bass and a rock solo that speaks of a circular world with no escape. The composed words have often had its meaning questioned and interpreted into many facets. So, finally, Glenn Frey and Don Henley, the original writers to the lyrics, have offered us some explanation. Quote, As you're driving in Los Angeles at night, you can see the glow of the energy of the lights and Hollywood and Los Angeles for a hundred miles out in the desert. And on the horizon, as you're driving in, all of these images start coming into your mind of the propaganda and advertisement that you've experienced about California. In other words, the movie stars, the stars on Hollywood Boulevard, the beaches, bikinis, palm trees, all those images that you see and that people think of when they think of California start running through your mind. You're anticipating that. And that's all you know of California." Unquote. The lyrics speak about moving from innocence to experience, of the American dream and the excess that can turn you into a nightmare. They tell the jaded viewpoint of Hollywood's California and all of its vanity. Its album cover, also now widely recognizable, evokes an amazing emotion. This photo was taken by the same photographer responsible for the Beatles' iconic Abbey Road image. The Eagles album cover has a warm lighting of a faraway sunset, and it actually gives off a sinister vibe, like the sun is setting the air on fire behind a dark silhouette of a hotel. Its photographed angle hides the full face of the hotel like it's a predator, just beyond a hill, waiting for you. As it turns out, this image of malevolence paired with the twisted lyrics of how luxury and excess make you its slave fits perfectly when you understand which hotel it was that was photographed. It's a faraway image of THE Beverly Hills Hotel. The hotel that has been in business since 1912, and up through the years hosted many huge stars like Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor, Gloria Swanson, Fred Astaire, and a whole other bevy of Hollywood icon elite that you would still know their names decades after their death. This is the iconic building of excess, and an ideal that can entrap you, if one is not careful, in California. You can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. I'm Tasha Wheelhouse, and this is Copper Shock. 1997 was a good year in my childhood. My family was taking a road trip from Utah out to California. I'd never seen the ocean up close. However, on this particular trip, something very unusual happened. 
we hit a wall of bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic blocking both lanes on the highway in the middle of the Mojave Desert. The sand was as far as the eye could see, or at least as far as really one could reasonably see in the dead of night. The only sign of civilization was the red string of brake lights lacing up over the hills in front of our car. My older brother, older sister, myself, and my younger brother all sat quietly, not doing much. You see, back then, portable DVD players didn't exist. Game Boys and portable CD players really only had so much battery life, and you can't read a paper book in the dark. So, for the four of us, we sat and looked out all the windows to a black nothingness. I could tell Dad was annoyed as he was inching us bit by bit on the road. The two-lane highway wouldn't see any actual movement for another three hours. When we were finally able to pull off the highway, we rolled into a gas station near a Denny's and filled up the car. However, by that point, it was 11.40 at night. We were hungry, desperately needed to use the restroom, and everyone was feeling a touch of cabin fever. After our quick pit stop, we piled back into the car once more, and as I stared out the window, I got drowsy and fell asleep. There was a shift in the car that made me wake up. A hard right turn that my body weight moved across my seatbelt. I took in a deep breath as I woke. I'll never forget that smell. It was so different from anything I'd experienced before that point in my life. Yes, there was the humidity. I knew what that felt like. But the salt. The air was just spiced with it, not table salt. It had a briny undertone that I recognized as fish-like. It's so unique and specific to California air, but at that point I knew we had to be close. Looking out the window, I could tell that we were driving around surface streets of Sun City. That was good. We were no longer on the highway. I, in particular, was excited for where we were going. You see, as a child, I had an unusual cinematic taste for someone under the age of 10. My parents and grandparents raised me on the classics as part of my regular film repertoire. In between Little Mermaid and The Lion King, I watched Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation, Harvey, and tons of Hollywood musicals from the 50s and 60s. But we were going to stay at the hotel that was shot on location of my first Marilyn Monroe film. The film is called Some Like It Hot, a comedy of a reverse Twelfth Night, if you will. Two musician men, down on their luck in the 1920s, are on the run after witnessing a rival mobster assassination. Out of work and out of options, they con their way into the only traveling musician job available to get out of town. An all-woman jazz band. After joining Dressed as Ladies, they meet the band's main singer, which is Marilyn Monroe's character. And they both fall for her. The jazz band ends up residing in a luxury hotel on the beach as hired entertainment for the week. Most of the exterior shots were filmed at the hotel we were traveling to, the Del Coronado in San Diego. It was incredibly late when we got there, just after two in the morning. We parked, and the bellhop grabbed our luggage from the trunk of the car. When we walked into the lobby, I felt a small elation, 
this place is amazing. The lobby had wooden wainscoting not only for the walls, but all across the ceiling. And a huge chandelier hung in the middle of it. Floral-shaped glass cups that held warm light bulbs and strings of hundreds of crystals draped in a circular pattern. A brass elevator that looked very old rested behind it. A velvet rope with two stanchions and a sign indicated it was presently closed and blocked the doorway to the elevator. My father, travel-weary, walked up to the concierge desk and said with an exasperated amiability, Boy, am I glad to see you. He said, leaning onto the front desk counter. Ready to check in, then. The front desk man gave a pleasant smile back as he took the printed-out confirmation number my father brought with us. After a few moments, the front desk handed my father a set of key cards. Hotel key cards in 1997 were a touch different than what they are now. Instead of RFID recognition or a swipe like a credit card, these cards had punched holes in them in funny patterns like an uncommon constellation. One key for mom and dad's room, and one key for my elder siblings, Alice and Max's room. We walked up the staircase to get to our floor and walked down the hall. Okay, here guys, Dad said pointing to a door that was in the corner of the walk. Max, Alice, you're here. Our room is just around the corner. Corner? I thought we told them we wanted a room right next to each other. My mom asked out loud, and her annoyance was somewhat thinly veiled from her exhaustion. Dad shrugged and muttered something about, we could sort it out later. Dad then walked over to room 3327, popped in his keycard to the door, a familiar electric buzz, and the deadbolt retracted as Dad pressed down onto the door handle. This room was long and narrow, with a half bay of windows at the edge. My cot was made and ready with a small pillow just for me near the closet. I remember asking my mom why the windows didn't look anything like they did in the movie. Mom then had to explain to me that all the outside shots were here, and the inside ones were done in a studio. Please brush your teeth before going to bed. I know we're all exhausted, Mom said to both my brother and I, but we did as asked. Where does that door go? asked my little brother Taylor. He was referring to a door at the back end of the room adjacent to the windows. I'm not too sure, my mother said. Let's go look. She unlocked the latch and tried to open it. That's odd. She realized no matter which way she turned the handle, it was still locked. A knocking came at the strange door. I cowered back behind my mother. Hello? She called. Through the other side of the wood, I heard a muffled, Hello, back. It was my big sister. I can't seem to get it open, Mom said through the door. After some trial and error, we figured out that both sides of the door handle had to be set to unlocked in order for it to open. Even though my big brother and sister's room was around the corner in the hall, these two rooms had a connecting door after all. To better explain this door, here's a link to the Library of Congress showing Coronado's door system before the recent renovations. This is a schematic from 1958. The schematic link can be found in the description of this podcast.
Little Taylor wandered into Big Sister and Brother's room. There was a second cot in there just for him. Well, good night, kids, Mom said, closing the connecting door. She then gave me a small hug before I hopped into my cot. The only problem was I had already gotten about two hours of sleep before arriving here, and now having walked for a quarter of a mile out of necessity to get to our hotel room, I no longer felt sleepy. I sat there, in the darkness, staring at the ceiling for a long while. It was the same problem as in the car. Too dark to do any real activity, but internal imagination. After a period of time, I began to hear my father snoring. Lightly, not too bad to keep the rest of us awake, but I'd say he'd earned it. At the age of eight, I felt confident about using my brain to take me places. I'd tell myself stories when laying in bed and playing them out in my mind's eye until my subconscious took over the steering wheel into sleep. I sat there, taking conscious breaths of the salty air, eyes open and looking up. I traced the pattern of the ceiling textures to see if I could make shapes out of them, kind of like looking at petrified clouds. I felt my body become warmer, as it usually does under my covers just before complete sleep. I could hear the rain begin to fall and pick up pace as it tapped at the glass on the windows. I eventually drifted into full sleep. I dreamed, but as I dreamed, I felt a wave of pity and remorse. I couldn't even tell you what it was I had done, but I dreamt that I was in our hotel room. The dimensions were a little off and I was standing near my cot. In the corner of my eye, I felt a shadow. It didn't glide around or anything, it's more like this shadow was somehow part of the regular shades of darkness until it decided to move and emerge from thin air. I turned toward it, and there was a woman. She wore a black lace face covering. She was standing in front of the door to the main hallway. I felt sad for her. I hadn't done enough for her. I don't know what it was that I did or did not do, but she certainly stood there looking at me, accusing. I started to whimper and cry in my sleep, penitent and wanting forgiveness with the simplicity I understood as a child. Then all in another moment, I sat up on my cot, feeling the way the springs creaked and crunched underneath me. I wasn't exactly all the way awake, but trying to get a full grip on the world around me. I was confused, and while the room seemed not to shift as much, I felt cold air run over my back. I had been sweating. The woman was gone, but I could still feel her arresting stare on me. I'm so sorry. It's all my fault. It's my fault. It's my fault. I said this over and over again as I walked over to my mother's bedside. Looking over my parents as they slept, I eventually became loud enough I woke up my mother with a startle. She was facing me from where she lay down. Honey, what's wrong? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. 
is all I could mutter no matter how much my mom asked me what I was sorry for. Dad eventually chimed in. Honey, I forgive you. Go back to sleep. I wandered over back to my cot, laid down, and felt myself slip into a restful sleep. The next morning, which really only shook out to be, you know, a few hours later, the family was up and ready to go to breakfast in the crown room. I really want to try that elevator, I heard my older brother say. I hope it's up and running, said Alice. I saw the two of them begin to walk forward, and I decided to catch up with them. Alice, Max, and myself walked over to the elevator doors. The stanchions were gone. Go ahead. My sister encouraged me to push the down arrow button. It lit up, and I heard a huge metallic whirring of machinery. I stepped back from the door. There was something about this that made me feel uncomfortable. The designs and aesthetic of the elevator looked like the Tower of Terror at Disney World. I pointed that out to Max, and he shrugged, letting me know, this is very different. I saw one door inside the elevator open, and an older gentleman reached out to pull and fold back the outer metal door. He was wearing a light blue uniform with buttons around the front, an old-timey operator hat, and his name tag in the center of his chest read, Andrew. Morning, he politely said. Alice gave him a big warm smile as we walked onto the elevator. He proceeded to shut both doors. Lobby, please, Alice asked in a sweet tone. The elevator man smiled. Then I heard him jovially singing and humming under his breath a song I recognized. You ain't nothing but a hound dog crying all the time. He then looked at little me. You like music? I was shy, so all I could do was nod. Where are you from? He looked over to Max. Utah. Hmm. Don't know any songs from there. I remember thinking at the time. Yeah, me neither. He looked to my big sister. You like Elvis? Alice smiled and said, Oh, yeah, of course. Who doesn't like burning love? We reached the lobby floor and Andrew reached over to open the inner collapsible metal frame and then the outer to let the three of us out. That was the first time I'd met Andrew, the elevator operator. Breakfast in the crown room was beautiful, wall-to-wall -wall Oregon pine. I was honestly too young to recognize how awesome it was, and I have wanted to go back again as an adult. There are massive chandeliers in the shape of a crown all down a row in the center of the oblong dome ceiling, 160 feet long and 33 feet high. The chandeliers were designed by the author of The Wizard of Oz himself, Frank Baum. All the original electricity was wired by Thomas Edison's company. After breakfast, it was time for the beach. It was still gray outside and a bit colder, but I did not care. I was determined to go and play on the beach and in that water. I think I expected the potency of the salt to be on par with that of chlorine in a pool. No. No, 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 no. When I accidentally got my first mouthful of ocean water, I nearly gagged. It was a serious amount of salt that I'd never tasted before that point. Funny, the things you do when you don't remember from your childhood vacations. 
I played on the sand, looking behind me to see the profile of the hotel that looked so familiar from the movies. I felt pretty happy. Mom mentioned that she started to feel her skin burning. Didn't matter if it was overcast, our family's the type where it gets sunburned even if there's no sun. I started to recognize the same, so the two of us decided to head back to the hotel and explore the shops inside. There's an almost subfloor to the Del Coronado, where all the shops are located in a long corridor, and it's easier to reach them via elevator. We said hello to Andrew, the operator, and he asked, what floor? One please, Mom said. Having a nice stay, Andrew asked amiably as he turned to press the appropriate button. Oh, yes, very nice, we love it here. Did you think of a song yet? He asked me. I was surprised. The sweet old man remembered me. I felt my face flush red and I shook my head. He then opened the doors. I saw my mother as a concerned look flashed over her face. Oh, right. We need to go to the room and get my wallet. Would you be willing to take us back up? I'm so sorry. Oh, of course. What floor? I admit, I do get a little confused. Our room is 3327. Is that on floor 2 or 3 with the way the building is laid out? I saw the outgoing little old man become visibly quiet. I know the floor. I'll take you there. He then pressed the button and the elevator began to move. You know, that's a very special room in the hotel. Do you know anything about it? Please tell me Tony Curtis stayed there. My mother gave a small wink. Oh, it's famous, all right, Andrew said, but by then we had reached the floor and he opened the two metal doors that let us out. I remember the second night. Going to sleep wasn't a problem. In fact, by this point, the day had been filled with so many distractions that I'd all but forgotten about the lady in my nightmare. But... She came to me again. She had a large black hat, a big Victorian thing. It reminded me of what I saw from Hello Dolly. I stood up again in a half-sleep daze. I wandered over to the connecting door between my brother and sister's room and our room. I stood in front of the tall door and looked down at the handle. I reached forward and tried to open it. It was locked again. I felt confusion hit me. Alice and Max aren't supposed to lock it after we knew how to get it open. I felt the handle jiggle in my loose grip. A small scratching sound came from the door right in front of me. Like fingernails dragging softly over painted wood. A haze of gravity pulled me toward the door, so I physically did everything in my power to take a step back. This didn't feel right. I didn't feel safe. I felt a jolt and woke up to the sound of a large crack. But after a few moments, I recognized that loud echo sound was only in my head. It had to be because neither of my parents were awake at all. At this point, I was officially awake. I felt the difference, and I was standing in front of the connecting door. I had moved from my cot to the door. What was really strange is about 30 seconds after I had woken up and realized where I was, 
Dad immediately stood up in bed and unceremoniously turned on the overhead light to the entire room. I felt a rushing headache come to me between just waking up and lights being turned on full blast into my face. What? My mother said, squinting and blinking her tired eyes at Dad. I saw him crouch down and look under the bed, then behind his dresser, then behind the TV box. Dad, what's wrong? I asked, repeating my mother's inquiry. I smell burning, he said. I took a deep sniff, but again, I could only smell the signature ocean smell around us. My mother then hopped into action out of bed and began sniffing herself like a bloodhound. After a moment, she stopped. Sorry, hun, I don't smell it. It's like matches or burning paper. I just didn't want to think I was going to sleep through some electrical fire. Well, can you still smell it? My mother asked. My father took a deep breath. No. I can't smell it anymore. I'm sorry I woke everyone up. I was just... I was very worried. My father sat back on his side of the bed. Then some logic suddenly came back to him as he realized I was not in my cot. I was standing by the connecting room door. Tasha, why are you over there? I saw that lady in my nightmare from yesterday. Dad gave me a paused look. Then he gently asked me, Was she wearing a big hat? I nodded eagerly. I feel funny, I said, and I sat by my mother. Sweetheart, I think you were sleepwalking. She put her arm around me. This hasn't happened before, has it? Dad gently asked my mom. As I hugged her, I felt her head shake left to right. These two nights are the only record of me sleepwalking at all in my entire life. Hmm, he said. I'll be right back. He put on his shoes, grabbed the key card with holes in it, and left in his pajamas. Mom and I sat there looking at each other. Since we were wide awake, we turned on the TV for a bit and sat on the main bed. About 25 minutes later, we heard the deadbolt to the door and Dad came back in. Okay, first thing in the morning, we're moving rooms to an ocean view suite. They're upgrading us. Oh? Mom said with a surprise and a curiosity. Yep. Dad said rather cross. I'm gonna stay awake while you two sleep. I'll explain in the morning. But just after we've moved rooms. And that was that. Dad had two nights in a row of completely disturbed sleep, and he was very much over it. The next day, the new rooms we migrated to were beautiful, huge windows that looked out over the beach and the vast ocean. We had three nights left, and I loved how loud the waves were whenever we opened our windows. When we finally had all of our luggage moved in, Dad asked me to go into the other room with my siblings for a minute while he talked with Mom. The rest of the trip was fun, but basically uneventful. It wasn't until years later that Dad finally told the rest of his kids the reason for his mid-trip hotel move. The afternoon, Mom and I left the beach early. He stayed behind with Alice, Max, and Taylor. They were staggered behind Mom and I by a few hours, and so, as Mom and I went back to the hotel room after shopping and taking a nap, Dad and my siblings were heading over to the shops themselves. 
Every trip, Dad likes to go through and pick up a history book of a place that he's visiting on his vacation. It's one of his favorite hobbies. He said, while browsing some hotel book histories, he opened up a page that spoke about Lottie Bernard and her mystery. Tasha Wheelhouse again. Please allow me to introduce you to Lottie Bernard, a wealthy 24-year-old who scandalously traveled on her own unescorted. She signed her name into room 302 on Thanksgiving Day in 1892. Next to her name, she signed her hometown as Detroit, Michigan. She only had her handbag and the clothes on her back. No luggage to check in. She came down to the desk every morning to ask the concierge if her brother had come to see her there. The answer every day was, no, unfortunately not. She kept to her room with only a handful of times of the staff recalling her ever leaving it. Days passed, and on November 28th, a passerby of the Hotel Del Coronado staff found her. Dead. According to a publication in the San Diego Union on November 30th of 1892, they describe an electrician was, quote, passing by the shell walk at the end of the western terrace, saw the lady lying on the steps leading to the beach. An American bulldog revolver was lying within two inches of her outstretched right hand. A ragged wound showed on the right temple, but the rain had washed away all stains of blood. Her body was soaking wet, stiff, and cold. Deputy Coroner Stetson was notified, and he had the body removed to Johnson & Co.'s undertaking rooms in the city before many of the guests of the hotel were stirring." Unquote. According to multiple different staff at the hotel, their encounters with Lottie Bernard said that she would complain about her poor health, that there may have even been an attempt at suicide by drowning herself in her bath. When she couldn't do it, she called for a bellboy to rub her head, and he noted that her hair was soaked to the roots, and she was in a frantic mood. The San Diego Union goes on to speculate that she was the victim of melancholia. To quote psychologist Tuke D.H., who published this book in the very same year of 1892, defines the understanding of melancholia in the 1890s as, quote, a disorder characterized by a feeling of misery which is in excess of what is justified by the circumstances in which the individual is placed, unquote. And that this is often accompanied by delusions. In other words, people suspected she was having severe, untethered depression of mental health that ultimately led to her suicide. The gun was registered to her name, of which she bought a few days prior. It seemed that Lottie Bernard's brother would be in for some bad news. Lottie didn't have a brother. Lottie wasn't from Detroit. And Lottie Bernard wasn't even her name. You see, while her body waited at the morgue, the hotel couldn't find anyone to claim her. They alerted Detroit authorities to attempt to find her family, but there was no response. When they went to search her room, they found burned letters. The only portions they were still able to read were Coronado, Lillian Russell, and I don't know any such man. The newspapers began to name the mystery woman as the beautiful stranger. It becomes even more peculiar when you understand they displayed her dead body in the coroner's street window in hopes that some passerby would identify her. 
It was eventually cleared up that she was Kate Morgan, and it was suspected that her, quote, brother was in fact a lover who had abandoned her there at the hotel. She grew depressed and in distress placed the barrel to her temple and pulled the trigger. It would seem that that would be the end of her story. Except, in the 1980s, Alan May discovered an interesting fact. The bullet found to have killed Kate Morgan, aka Lottie Bernard, did not match the gun she was found with. And while this theory has resurrected stories of foul play, nothing has reopened her case officially. The room she stayed in, in seclusion for five days before her passing, was room 302. Or rather, as it is known today, room 3327.